Now you've just made a huge profit by what was typically an expense or a liability. You just turn it into an asset and you've become part of the supply chain. And that's what we need. We need more people creating nurseries and becoming part of the supply chain. All right, check it out. It's no secret to any of us that the world has gone completely insane. And although I do think this strange time will eventually be a net positive in the final analysis, I also believe and know, frankly, that our society is incredibly fragile in many ways. This is why I've been taking steps for the past two years or so to become as prepared as possible for the unexpected. And the missing link for me up until this point has been the ability to grow my own food and to wean off the teat of agriculture and store-bought calories. So for this reason, I'm incredibly excited to bring you today's episode 385, Beyond Prepping, How to Turn Your Yard into a Food Forest with Jim Gale. Jim's going to teach us how to become food sovereign. It's a powerful episode and one that is so very timely. But first, let's show some love to our sponsors without whom I could not produce and distribute conversations like the one you're about to hear. First up, we've got earthechofoods.com slash Luke Story for that cacao bliss. LilaQ.com for some incredible quantum energy technologies. And finally, juve.com slash Luke for all things red light therapy. About our guest, well, Jim Gale is an incredible human. I just love this dude, his journey, and more than anything, his mission. At age 19, Jim first learned about the power of writing his goals, and from the practice of inspired visioning, he became a four-time All-American and national champion wrestler. Then he wrote his goals down again at the age of 29, which included being retired in three years. Then Jim went on to create a mortgage company that reached $1.3 billion in sales in three years, leading him to early retirement and the achievement of another life goal. Then after living on the ocean for a year, he moved to Costa Rica to build eco-villages and discovered permaculture. It changed his life, and he realized he needed to bring it to every household in the world. The idea whose time has come began Food Forest Abundance, his company, and his current passion and mission. And one that, frankly, I'm just so happy to support and also to embrace into my home and my lifestyle. What follows now is just a small fraction of what you'll hear in this episode. I think we covered just about everything you could ever want to know about growing your own food. So make sure to listen until the end and please share this show with someone you love. We talked about what food forests are and why they're more important than ever. Then Jim shed some light on the insanity of farmers currently being forced to destroy crops. He breaks down permaculture and what sets it apart from organic and biodynamic farming when to compost and when to skip it, the life cycles of plants such as perennials and annuals and the impact of invasive species. He goes on to explain how insects and animals interact with food forests, how you can keep the aesthetics of your yard and still make tons of food, the most important nutrients for a thriving food forest and how to build incredible soil, the nutrient density and diversity of a food forest, food storage and canning if you happen to make too much food to eat, and thankfully, Jim dispels the myth that growing your own food takes hours of weekly maintenance, which has been a huge deterrent for me until now. How Jim is doing his part to create new careers and jobs for people who've had to pivot. We also cover the resources Jim provides for people who want to have a food forest but don't want to pay someone to do it for them, which can also turn into one of the only side hustles that will keep you connected to nature. 
He also highlights other emergency preparedness tools that we should all have, especially in times like these. And finally, where Jim sees all of this going in the future and his thoughts about government overreach when it comes to growing your own food. You can find complete show notes and links to get your food forest going at lukestory.com slash food forest. That's lukestory.com slash food forest. Okay, that's enough out of me. Let's take the next 90 minutes to explore what just might be the thing that saves humanity and along with it, the environment in the long run. So get ready to have your dome open wide with the incomparable Jim Gale of Food Forest Abundance. Let's just dive right into it. You know, you've been on a number of podcasts and you've told your story in Costa Rica and kind of how you got into that. And I think selfishly, because I've already heard someone's origin story, I always just want to skip it. So I'm going to recommend people go listen to the High Wire or some other shows you've done and get into some of your history, not to discount that, but I really want to get into the meat of this topic and provide people with some value. So let's just start out with the obvious question, the low-hanging fruit, no pun intended. Uh, What is a food forest? A food forest is a designed plant system that mimics natural systems that provides a yield for humans. So in other words, um, if you look at the forest down the road, it's probably got a lot of stuff in there that you can eat. Most people don't know what that is. In fact, I'm going to be learning about foraging from some different people, including hopefully Les Stroud. We're in in talks. Nice. Yeah. Love that guy. And um, so- A food forest is a design system that will have all of the perennials and some annuals that the customer wants. And it's all put together in a way where it's very, very low maintenance. In fact, it could be zero maintenance if you don't care how it looks. If you are okay with it just being a jungle of food, then you can leave it and it will be a jungle of food. Or you can treat it like landscaping. You can have it manicured and pruned and all fancy. And then it's beautiful and it's still going to be highly productive. Awesome. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of Daniel Vitalis. Uh, he's, yes. he's a friend of mine. He's been on the show a couple of times. We've been on each other's shows a bunch of times. Yeah. But he's been into wild food foraging and now, and now hunting and fishing for the past couple of years uh, heavily. And I remember him talking years ago about the not only the nutritional density of wild plants mm-hmm. but also the variety yeah and he he explains how when you go in the grocery store and you go in the you know fruit and vegetable section yeah you think that there's 25 different vegetables but they're actually you know just kind of hybrids of yep. the the origin species like a broccoli brussels sprouts yeah. kale etc basically the same plant yep. with essentially the same nutrient profile. And I always found that to be really interesting thinking about um, our evolution in terms of the variety of things that our ancestors as hunter-gatherers were eating prior to agriculture. So when it comes to permaculture, is it possible to get, you know, heirloom seeds and things that are not as hybridized and and create, obviously you wouldn't have the same level of diversity you would in nature, but Can we create a yard or, or, you know, whatever property we're working with so that we just have as more diversity than, than you would at a grocery store? Incredibly more. Uh, like, and that's part of the strength and the resiliency of a food forest system is having an incredible variety of different types of food. And I'll give you an example. Um, my buddy, Chad Johnson, one of our designers and just an amazing and um, connected to nature human being. He has a food forest in northern Minnesota off the tip of Lake Superior 
that has 300 different species of edible and medicinal plants that he planted. Then he's got nature coming into his system and planting more things. Then he's got nature taking the things that are in his system and bringing them out into the forest that surrounds his property. So it's expansive on its own. If that food forest was left on its own without poisons, you know, and, and all the destruction that has been happening around the world of these natural systems, it would literally cover the earth over a certain amount of time. You know, and he has no fences. Now I love fences because I love turning them into food fences, right, like right. trellises, like grapevines and passion flower and all these different things. And they do speed up the time that you can get harvest. So in other words, if you've got a property that has a lot of deer or different kind of animals, you put up a fence, you're going to speed it up. What he did, because he was really looking at proving this over time, is he created raspberries, eight foot tall raspberry bushes that are so thick you can't see through them. And even a moose wouldn't walk through those thorny things. So That's he's cool. got these raspberries around all of his different, different types of, of plants. It's absolutely fantastic. Well, I remember when I was a kid in Northern California, uh, there would be, you know, big blackberry bushes out in the, you know, and we, we would run around the apple orchards and eat apples and the vineyards up there, we'd eat grapes. So I, I'm kind of used to, as a kid, just grabbing food, but those blackberry bushes, man, nothing's getting through them. Right. I remember we, you know, we try to cut our way in there because you couldn't get to some of yep. them and, you know, they're ferocious plants. So I can see how that would be definitely useful when you're trying to keep some of the, you know, larger animals out. Big time. And functional. We're, we're talking about stacking functions. So if you want a barrier, you want a fence, you might as well make it more beautiful, animal habitat, attraction for pollinators, and edible. You were telling me, or maybe I heard you on a Del Bigtree show, that in Texas, grapes grow really well and that if you have fencing around your property why aren't you growing grapes do i did i get that right you got that right in fact at adrian's place i believe he's got six types of grapes growing and he's going to create wine out of those grapes over time so six different types and in a relatively small area he can do 300 to 500 bottles of wine per year what yeah isn't that amazing that's crazy well you know i was thinking about uh have you been out to fredericksburg I've heard of it. Heard of all, it. Yeah, yeah, it's maybe an hour away from here. And it's, I think they call it the Napa of Texas. Yeah. And they have, you know, an emerging kind of culture of vineyards and, you know, a lot of uh, kind of farm to table food. It's a cool little town. It's kind of um, modeled after a German village. It's, yeah. it's really weird. You drive into downtown cool. and you're like, what? Why is this in Texas? But that's, I think, when I first got the knowledge that you could grow grapes here, it's just... I don't know. Texas is kind of weird because there there doesn't seem to be a lot of agriculture here. So when you drive around, no one's really growing anything except lawns, right? Yeah. Which we're going to talk about. Um, so I kind of came to Texas thing, and I you probably can't grow anything here. Is that right. a fallacy? It is a fallacy. Anywhere that you walk outside and you have plants, you can strategically plant and have a food forest. You know, in fact, we just looked up the tundra plants and we found like three different species of plants, one on the herbaceous layer and a couple different shrubs and bushes that you can eat, right? And that is literally the most inhospitable climate in the world for growing, right? So when you come to a place like Texas with the proper design elements, number one being catch and store water. 
in most places in Texas. Now, some places get more rain than others. Some places it's really easy. Some places you have to put a little more thought into that design process. You build a ditch on contour. It could be six inches wide. It could be six feet wide. Most of the time in a backyard, it's a tiny little ditch on contour. That way when the water, when it does rain, even if it only rains once every two or three months in certain areas, the water hits the ground and it starts collecting nutrients as it's going usually off of your property with the nutrients, with the topsoil. Oh, right. So when you have a swale, the water stops, it slows, and it settles with the water going into the system and the nutrients staying right there. In terms of uh, utilizing rainwater in that way, how necessary is it to have a full-on catchment system? You know, some of the properties here, uh, some of the larger properties will have I don't know, I guess it comes off the roof and there's yeah. pipes that go into a big cistern and they're actually, one house I stayed here in an Airbnb was exclusively run on, on yeah. rainwater. So are there different degrees of like rainwater catchment apart from what you just spoke of? Absolutely. There's the standard like off the roof into the container catchment systems. And then the ones I'm talking about are using natural catchment systems in the earth. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. <clears throat> a little yeah, bit different. Because in our, in our yard, it's, it's, it's on a bit of a hill, yeah. which you'll see uh, on Saturday. And <laughs> we, we bought the house and then they, the, the sellers were kind enough to offer to reseed the lawn in the backyard because it was all just kind of dirt. Yeah. You know? And then the big freeze happened and it killed all the, the seedlings of yeah. the grass. So we came and then we haven't gotten a landscaping yet. But what I noticed is there was... Um, a fair amount of soil in the backyard when we first arrived. And then we had a lot of rain this season. And yep. now when I go back there, it's all just gravel. Yeah. You know what I'm sensing since it's on a hill and no one's managing yep. the the resource of water there that yeah. is kind of just eroding, as you said, all of the soil that's been created right. uh, by the plants, et cetera. And now it's just kind of, it's gravel. And I'm thinking, how did anything ever grow here? Yeah. That is one of the best functions of a lawn is erosion control. Right. So a lawn does have a yield. It's, and I don't hate lawns. A lot of people think that I'm the lawn hater. What I hate is the imbalance of it all. Like the 40 to 50 million acres of lawn around the United States, if we turn 50% of that into perennial edible landscapes or food forests, we would reverse mass extinction and deforestation, cancer, heart disease, diabetes, heart disease, diabetes and we would get a lot of food. And we would be healthier. We would reduce our insurance bills. We would reduce our family's likelihood of getting cancer massively. And, and of course, we would increase our food security and the beauty that's in our yard. I wonder why more environmental activists aren't getting behind this movement or, or are they and I'm just not aware of it. It depends who's paying them. <laughs> it, for real yeah. if it's the powers that be paying them then they have a different narrative that does not include true regeneration of our of our world their nar narrative is very much more about control and in the case of the environmentalists who actually understand permaculture which there are i would say thousands at minimum but possibly millions around the world who have proven what i'm saying in every zone in every climate and they're demonstrating it, which is so important nowadays to demonstrate and to prove to the world, look at, this is how much time I spend in my food forest. And I don't work a day in my food forest. I want to be there. I'm looking for reasons to just stand there and look around. I want to take a moment to share with you my brand new eyewear company called Gilded by Luke Story. 
My goal with creating this brand was to tackle the problem of blue light and bad fashion design with one simple solution. Blue light is a color of light needed during the day, especially at sunrise from its natural source, the sun, to release cortisol, promote alertness and focus, and to set our body's natural circadian rhythm. Artificial blue light from sources such as device screens, TVs, street lamps, city lights, and car lights is a distorted color of light with detrimental effects on our health. So taking in artificial blue light after dark tricks our bodies into thinking it's still daylight, which disrupts our circadian rhythm and prevents restorative sleep. Taking in artificial blue light during the day is disruptive to our health because it lacks the healing red and infrared light with which blue light is balanced in sunlight. And a disrupted circadian rhythm and lack of great sleep leads to a decrease in vitality and to long-term chronic health issues such as obesity, anxiety, depression, diabetes, cancer, neurodegenerative diseases, heart disease, and autoimmune diseases. Exposure to artificial blue light during the day also leads to the above effects as well as to eye strain and a decrease in energy and brain function. So by wearing gilded blue light blocking day lenses, you will block 100% of the damaging artificial blue light at 455 nanometers as measured across the light spectrum. And by wearing the gilded blue light blocking night lenses, you expand that blue light blocking coverage even further to 550 nanometers into the range of disruptive green light. What's also really cool is that gilded glasses are made by using a proprietary blend of pigments, including melanin, which is infused directly into the lenses to fully block harmful blue light. So by using the gilded glasses to block the harmful blue light during the day and night, you're going to set your body's natural circadian rhythm, which will give you the good sleep you need to wake up healthy, healed, and energized, and will also set your circadian rhythm for the next night of healthy sleep. To check out my new line of men and women's eyewear, go to gildedbylukestory.com. That's G-I-L-D-E-D, gildedbylukestory.com. You know, it brings me back to an experiment I did when I was living in LA. I was there for 32 years. And at some point, I don't remember how I found it, but it was like a urban garden company that would come out with these uh, hydroponic uh, trays of you know vegetables and stuff. And if you had space for it, they'd come and install it and they, they would come maintain it to a certain degree. And um, <laughs> I realized when I did that, even despite that they would come check on them, I was like, I can't do this. Like who has time for this? You know, like one time I had a, I think I was growing squash up and I put it up on the roof of my apartment building, you know, without anyone's permission, which is typically how I do things. I like to say, ask for forgiveness, not permission. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but raccoons started getting into it, you know? And um, I thought, man, that this home farming stuff is really hard, you know, cause I don't want to hurt the raccoons. Eventually I think I devised this little, I didn't want to trap them or poison them or, you know, animal yeah. control is not going to come out for an urban garden. So I, I devised this little, um, how do I say it? it wasn't a trap, but I, I basically put a stick with this little board that would flip over if they stepped on it. And yeah. I put a bunch of cayenne pepper on there. Oh yeah. That's awesome. So then when they stepped on it, poof, you know, they would hopefully not come back and it actually worked, which is the funny thing. Cause I came back and I guess it was kind of a trap. It had been yeah. set and activated. And then that was the end of them. They never came back. That's but, fantastic. But eventually I just kind of gave up, yeah, you know, yeah. it was just, even with that, I was like, God, you know, for four pieces of squash i'm out there how many hours but you know that it was a system um unlike yours with permaculture where i was like fighting against the urban yeah. landscape yeah. rather than finding a way to work with it so what's the difference between this kind of modern urban you know yeah. 
faux utopian dream people have of turning cities and buildings into places where you grow versus actually yeah. working with the land itself. This is something that I've spent 14 years, more years of the mistake of trying to improve on what nature does. I've built massive hydroponic systems and off-grid, all sorts of dehydration and all this. And when I got some criticism by uh, somebody here named Jack, who uh, he's the angry permaculturalist. I love the guy. He's one of my <laughs> consultants. Um, he, he basically said, you're crazy. That's not how to do it. Use the soil, work with the soil. I built these fancy greenhouses. And then I started, I listened to him because I respected him, even though he was giving me a ton of shit. And I'm like, okay, what is the best return for society? What's the scalable idea? And in fact, this is Victor Hugo's quote. There's one thing stronger than all of the armies of the world. And that is an idea whose time has come. And I sat with that. I meditated with that. And the idea is like a seed. It's planted within all of our consciousness. The idea of the abundance of the Garden of Eden is not a utopian fantasy. It's literally the next logical step for humanity. It's perennial edible landscapes working with the soil. Instead of having hydroponic parts and mechanics and all the different pumps and things that you need, it's better to just put the same amount of time and energy. For instance, our greenhouse, it would have been a retail of a minimum of $25,000. And it would have produced X amount of return on investment. Probably got a return in about seven or eight years. With a food forest, you'll have a $25,000 return much more quickly than that. And it'll just keep going and going and going. And you'd never need to replace a part. Wow. Yeah. So cool. What do you think is so pertinent at this time for people to really start to embrace this? You know, I know even moderate people that aren't conspiracy theorists and, you know, aren't into some of the things that I'm into researching and understanding, or at least think I am understanding uh, in the era of the pandemic and all this. Um, I think even kind of regular normal people are getting a sense that we, we must learn how to uh, become interdependent and less dependent on the, the grocery store and, you know, the whole kind of agricultural system. What's your kind of uh, perspective on what's going on right now. And if things get much worse, what does that look like? And why is the time so critical right now that yeah. we embrace these ideas? Well, time is of the essence. And if, if I have only one concern, it's that I didn't start this soon enough. And so the idea um, of centralization has led to six corporations basically being in control of almost all of the world's food supply. And those six corporations are run by the same corporations, which are run by the same families, which have controlled the masses forever. So it's not a conspiracy theory. It's just, it's just these corporations exist and that's how it goes. But if the problem is centralization and monocultures, which take poisons because a monoculture, the way they do it, is not a natural system. It's unnatural where we're growing rice in a desert. We're growing all these greens in a desert and then we're shipping them 3,000 miles away from the West Coast to the East Coast to different places. It's radically unsustainable. So that's the problem. The solution, as Bill Mollison said, though the problems of our world are increasingly complex, the solutions remain embarrassingly simple. <laughs> embarrassingly that. simple. We just plant uh. food. We plant food. If we just took our ornamental landscapes 
and added the function of food and medicine production, if that's all we did, we would have an incredibly healthy society. Is it feasible that someone with a, you know, a, I guess an average size suburban plot of land could grow enough food to feed, you know, a three or four person family? Like, can you get enough caloric density out of that without having too much reliance on animal products, et cetera? I, I think for me, you know, I was a vegetarian for almost 10 years, right? And I was always starving, you know, because I was living on carbohydrates. Yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, I just, I could never get full. And so people ask me now, what do you eat? And I'm like, it's boring, but I could probably just eat like beef and some fats and maybe a vegetable yeah. every once in a while yeah. and ice cream. Um, so like, it's hard for me to imagine not having an abundance of meat to the yeah. point where I went and bought a quarter steer before I left um, LA and it's right. in my freezer at the house now. It'll probably take me a year to get through it. But let's just say my freezer goes out, all that meat rots and goes to waste and there's all the grocery stores shut down and I've got a food forest in my backyard. Like, how can I get full and feed my family? Is that feasible? So we love incorporating animals into a system. And on a suburban backyard, you can grow all the food that your family needs to survive. Now, if it's a quarter acre, this has been demonstrated. Even there's a house in California on a tenth of an acre that provides all the food the family needs. And when you bring chickens into the system, maybe a pond with some fish, and then you start cycling fish into the system, and then you use that effluent to actually water the plants. You, so you catch water from, the, from rain, rainwater catchment, you put it into the pond, and then you use that effluent, and then boom, it just explodes. The chicken manure, chickens are such incredible assets. There's so many functionalities of a chicken. They can be um, protective. They can eat the bugs. They can eat the ticks. They can create heat for a greenhouse. There's all these different ways to combine these elements in, in which they, they serve each other. And that's very much mimics a natural system. So the answer is yes, you absolutely can. Um, right now, I'm a big fan of a combination of annuals and perennials. Long-term, I'm all about perennials because perennials, you can literally be no maintenance. Annuals are a little more maintenance, but when you turn maintenance into a meditation, maintenance into a joy, then you're serving so many functions of your life. Um, so yes, and, and there's a few particular things like potatoes and sweet potatoes, the starches, yuccas, different things that are very low maintenance and that are like nutrient dense, like sweet potatoes, and they're so easy to grow. What are some of the other things that one might want to store? You know, when I think about emergency preparedness or just being self-sufficient, of course, you know, having a freezer full of frozen meat feels nice. Yeah. Uh, but let's say that wasn't there. One thing that I um, always come to is fats. You know, I want to have some vats of coconut oil and yeah. ghee and things like that, yeah. which I think say like all I've got to eat is my sweet potatoes that I'm growing in my food forest. Yeah throw some ghee in there, you got yeah. a meal, you know? Yeah. Then you've got some, you know, complex carbs and you've yeah. got like healthy fats. What other kind of things are good for people aside from growing to maybe just get into storage that will actually last? Well, well? lard, um, ghee, um, that is fantastic. In fact, that saved many people's lives throughout the, uh, the Great Depression. And people would add some of that to their meals, all their meals. Um, Microgreens for people who want something that's relatively easy and quick. You can harvest microgreens in like 14 days. 
I used to, I turned my whole garage into a microgreens garage at one point. Um, now I realized how much work that is. And I don't lo- want to do that kind of work. I want to, <laughs> my, my job is to be an effective inspirer and to demonstrate what's possible from a perspective that the average suburban homeowner will say, I, sh- I can do that. I, in fact, that's a no brainer. I want to do that for every reason. Out of selfish reasons, this is something that I'm helping people see that this is good on every level. And what about the uh, storage of excess food? Let's say you're four years into your food forest and you've got peach trees and cherry trees and, you know, apples, whatever, and you're actually producing more food than your immediate family and friends can consume. Uh, You know, I remember back in the day, my grandparents were canning, you know, canning was like a thing, right? Fermenting foods. What are some ways that one could actually preserve those for, for hard times or say you're, you know, you you produce a lot during the growing season. You want yeah. to make it through the winter, et cetera. Yeah, that's so. My mom grew up on a farm in uh, southern Minnesota, Medelia, Minnesota, and she had no running water and no electricity till she was 15 years old. And they produced all of the food they ate on the property. And canning is huge. Now, what I've learned in Costa Rica, we created an off-grid dehydrating system where we used the sun and some simple boxes. Like you can take a box, um, like a four by eight box, paint it black and put some plexiglass or some glass on top. In fact, I found a door that somebody was discarding in the road the other day and I grabbed, it was a glass door, beautiful door, like a storm door. I grabbed it and we're making a dehydrator out of that. And we'll have about a six inch space. The sun will hit that. It'll heat up that box to a couple hundred degrees or 140, 180 degrees. And then heat rises. So then we put a box in there with some shelves and we chop, we slice up at a quarter inch, an eighth of an inch, all the different fruits and veggies. We lay them on those those trays, and then the air goes up and it sucks all the moisture out of those out of those plants. And then you plant, you paint the chimney black, so the sun hits the chimney and heats up the air in the chimney. So it creates a a suction, no and way. it just goes right through. It takes all the moisture out, and now those plants, without any effort, can store for a year those dehydrated wow. apples and mangoes and whatever you have, right? With a little vacuum seal, you can store them for five years or more. That's crazy. Yeah. So because you're creating that suction, you don't have issues with mold and- Exactly. You know, uh, yeah, now, if it gets rainy, if it gets wet out, and then all of a sudden you stop the process midstream, you can have mold issues. So you want to pick a good day where it's sunny and uh, boom, you get those dehydrated in eight hours. Sometimes it takes a little longer. And now you've got something that you can use all winter long as a snack. What about people that live in an area, um, you know, Portland, Oregon, or somewhere where they don't get much sun? Yeah, it's going to be a little harder in in areas like that. You're going to want to pick some sunny days for dehydration. But in the fall, I mean, even just for growing. Oh, growing. Well, Portland's loaded with plants. Like Portland's a a jungle. I haven't been there for like 30 years. But last time I was there, I remember how lush and dense the forests around Portland were. So there's plants that are good for that zone. Got in it. every zone, there are plants that are natural and successful in that zone. And I guess if you're growing plants that are successful wherever you live geographically, by default, you would also be eating seasonally and locally. Yes. Right? Which is a, I mean, there are, I've interviewed people like Jack Cruz and, and there are a lot of really intelligent people that have talked about, um, I mean, it gets complex. It's circadian biology and stuff, right? Where 
if you're living in Idaho and, and it's January and you get bananas sent in from Mexico and you're eating those, your body actually doesn't know what to do with them right? because of where you are in relationship to the sun. So it's like a foreign substance. It's yeah. a whole thing. Yeah. But I think this would kind of solve that problem, right? Because it, it's either going to bear food and fruit or yeah. not, depending on where you are and when it is. Yeah. There's something magical about our connection to the natural system. And we've gotten so disconnected with that. I was talking to an archaeologist the other day who was sharing exactly what you were sharing about seasonal foods. And our bodies are meant to store at certain times of year. And they're meant to do other types of energy activities, like harvesting at other times of year. And so when we eat according to the seasons, we're actually healthier and more energized. Wow. So yeah, cool. And then what about, uh, what about the layout of a permaculture setup? You know, I've looked at your blueprints and things like that. And it's really ingenious where you'll have um, a perennial that's uh, produces a bunch of shade, right? Yeah. And yeah. then there's herbs underneath that. And there's this really complex yet logical system of kind of stacking things so that their relationship to the sun is appropriate at yeah. the right time and all that. Yeah. Break, break that down a bit for us. Well, like what we're doing in Florida, we're, there's not as many deciduous trees like in Minnesota, all of them except for the pines pretty much are deciduous. Um, they drop their leaves in the fall. In Florida, there's a few. So we're going to plant the right types of deciduous trees on the south facing side of our house. So let's say in the winter, they drop their leaves and we get the sun. In the summer, they're full and we shade from the sun. And that's just one example. Um, another one, we just planted uh, bananas and papayas, which are relatively fast growing, next to a bunch of different longevity spinach, Okinawa spinach, Suriname spinach that like to be understory. They don't like the sun. So these plants will come up and they'll create shade. So those plants might get two or three hours of sun a day where the plants that like all the sun, which will create the shade, they'll get all the sun of the day. So it's, it's basically mimicking that natural system, finding out what works with what. And, and yeah, it's, it's really just looking and observing nature and saying, oh, why is that plant there? And then that's what these permaculturalists have done for, well, for decades now is they've figured it out and then they've shared it with the world. I've been into cacao for a couple decades. Now, that's cacao, not chocolate. Been into that since I was born, probably. But most chocolate is a pretty sketchy origin and full of sugar and sometimes even mycotoxins. I'm talking about the superfood cacao, the ceremonial grade stuff. The brand I use is from Danette May of Mindful Health and her company Earth Echo. It's called Cacao Bliss, and it is insanely good. Cacao Bliss is made with 100% organic cacao beans that are naturally kissed by the sun, maintaining their miraculous health benefits. Then they blend the cacao with turmeric, MCT oil, coconut, Himalayan sea salt, cinnamon, and black pepper for the perfect mix to add to hot water or any other hot or cold drink. My go-to is usually pouring a scoop or packet of this stuff into my morning coffee. I actually made one this morning and chugged it on the road while running errands. Cacao Bliss does the cacao right. It checks all the boxes. It's paleo, gluten-free, keto, and even vegan. Well, mine's never vegan because I usually add grass-fed butter and colostrum to my hot drinks. But anyway, if you're ready to get down with some Cacao Bliss, it doesn't matter how you make it. It's always delicious and really good for you. It's your lucky day today right now because they are offering up to 15% off when you use the code LUKE15 at earthechofoods.com slash LUKESTORY. That's Earth Echo Foods slash Luke's story. 
or you can just click on the link in your podcast app show notes. You'll see the code Luke15 there too. It makes a lot of sense, you know, if you think about going into a redwood grove, right, where there's only the tops of those trees are getting direct sun. And if it's in a place like, you know, the Pacific Northwest, maybe even not that much, right? Right. When you go into one of those forests, I've always found it so um, interesting how you have moss and ferns and all of these um, just really beautiful and more fragile plants that exist on the forest floor that are getting no sun, but they're still flourishing and green. I mean, I don't know how many of them are edible, but you can kind of see an extreme example of that or in the Amazon. It seems like the Amazon is almost, it's almost like a, a food forest in and of itself, right? And in tropical areas like that, where everything's kind of already doing what you describe and in those tropical areas, a lot of it is edible. Yeah. And the Amazon was a designed food forest 5,000 years ago. Really? Yeah. Uh, archaeologists, there's a bunch of different studies out there showing the pathways, showing the agricultural um, systems that they've cre- that they created. I think it was the Incas, was it the Mayans or Incas? I think it's the Incas in 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 most of the Amazon, um, where they actually created these food forests. And when they left, or however they're gone, they just continued to thrive. And that's why it's such an abundant and diverse place. It was designed to create a lot of food. And what about um, the location of plants? Um, I remember again on Dell's show, you had a pretty decent sized piece of land and and you were talking about, well, we, you know, put the potatoes way out there in the field and then, you know, the access to the food that you're going to be harvesting as you get closer to the house kind of was common sense where the herbs are right outside the kitchen door, for example, because you just want easy access. Break down kind of the, the perimeter of, of, uh, you know, location in terms yeah. of how far out you go with the different plants. Cool. So it's all about energy, right? And the more return on our energy investment that we can get, the better. So herbs and things that you're going to want for like a daily use, you want them as close to where you're cooking as possible. The next row, so you got zone one, two, three, and four. The next zone is going to be things that you might visit once every few days or once every week. That would be like a typical food forest. And then you go out a little bit more and a little bit more. Pretty soon you've got your timber where you might visit that or harvest that once a year. And so it's all about the interaction of how am I going to conserve and use my energy wisely? And what's the difference between, you know, there's kind of a hierarchical structure of you have chemical laden, um, you know, sort of um, manufactured food in a conventional farm where there's all these inputs of pesticides and herbicides and fake fertilizers and all that. Then you have kind of monocrop organic food. Yeah. And then you have, uh, I guess, permaculture. And then what seems to be the most next level to me is biodynamic. Yeah. So, you know, I think a lot of people think if they're eating organic food from Whole Foods, that it's really healthy, but I don't, I would be, I mean, I eat it, right? It's better than conventional, but it's suspect in terms of what's actually going into the fertilizer, even in organic food. So in your opinion, I guess, what's the hierarchy of like the shittiest possible farmed food? I guess, you know, speaking of vegetables, leaving animals aside down to like, what is the ultimate? So a few things to unpack there. One is any food grown with poisons, it's not the natural way. If it's not the natural way, it's not going to be natural and healthy for our bodies. Um, Then we talked about Whole Foods. The average time between farm to market for Whole Foods is like 11 days, right? So that means the plant was picked 
at minimum, probably two weeks before it was ready to be picked. Nature's perfect. Nature's perfect in the efficiency and the resiliency. So a vine ripened plant is going to look better. It's going to taste better. It's going to be more nutrient dense than a plant that was picked two weeks before it was ripe. In Costa Rica, we'd go in and see, I went and saw one of the uh, distribution centers for bananas and all the bananas were like green, green. And I'm like, oh, cool. When are these going to market? And they said, oh, we're going to send them out tomorrow. And I said, God, they're not even close. He goes, oh, we spray the spray on them and that makes them yellow in a day. Like, wow. So they're not even close to as nutrient dense or as tasty. And they, yeah. And that's why you see a little bit of a brown banana that says organic at the store. It's going to be way healthier, more enzymes and more life in it than a banana that looks perfect and is perfectly yellow. And so that's a lot of different things to unpack there. But the natural way when you walk right outside your door and you look around and you see a bunch of peaches on a peach tree, you know which one's ripe. You go up, you grab it, and you're like, oh my gosh, that one's ripe. Taste it, it just drips down. It's loaded. And so in addition to just the immediacy and kind of following nature when something's ready, uh, I'm thinking that there's got to be <laughs> a deficit in nutrition when you have a monocrop. A lot of people think eating a bunch of kale is healthy. Like, oh, I'll eat a bunch of organic kale. Yeah. But um and what you're describing with the permaculture is, you know, all of these plants are not only growing in a more natural way, but they're having a relationship with one another, right? Yeah. So maybe you could talk about how the plants in this system actually support one another. Absolutely. So there's different kind of classifications of plants within our food forest company system. And we're putting together this huge chart of plants per zone, per classification. So you've got your food producers and your medicine producers, your edibles. And then almost all of those have multi-functions, right? They're also, they create flowers and they are pollinator attractors. But in some cases, we plant a fire bush or a, a row of flowers. Many times they're also edible. And so those are specifically there to attract the butterflies and the bees. And then we plant nitrogen fixers are very important. Our, our soil needs nitrogen. And so any of the legumes, the beans and the peas, you plant the nitrogen fixers, all throughout the, pro, uh, the the food forest, and they will start building nitrogen in the soil. And then the chop and drop plants, plants like Mexican sunflower and many more where moringa grow pretty fast, where you chop them and you drop them onto the floor of your food forest and they will actually build soil over time. So instead of depleting a system, which is unsustainable, you're actually adding to and regenerating, which is the opposite, which is pure life. And you let it go and it just goes on its own. What's your definition of sustainability? Sustainable, a sustainable system is a system that produces more energy than it takes to create and maintain. So it's a net positive, which is so easy when you've got the wind and the sun and the rain. In other words, anything unsustainable is almost purposely unsustainable. Like it's just insane to have an unsustainable system when we've got energy all around us. Yeah, I was watching a documentary a couple of years ago. I forget what it was called. It was something around uh, the water wars, and it was about the uh, almond orchards in California, like in Central California. Yeah. And you just see, you see all this infighting with the landowners, and these big corporations come in and buy swaths of land, and they they put a well in, and they're stealing all the water out of the aquifer from the little old man that's had the farm, you know, for three generations, and all this yeah. kind of stuff. And I just thought. 
are almonds really worth it? You know, like yeah. there's got to be a better way to do it. And meanwhile, you have the end consumer that's like, I'm healthy. I'm eating almonds and right, I'm not right. eating, you know, factory farm meat or whatever. And right. I would argue there's probably a case for that, but it is kind of, um, you know, alarming to see the amount of waste and just stupidity that goes into our food production system. You know, especially for you, someone that's that knowledgeable, you must just be like, ah, pulling your hair out. Well, it's an opportunity of a lifetime. It's the business of a lifetime. I've never, I'm 52. I've never felt better. I have never been more inspired and empowered in my life and never been so um, just happy to do what I'm doing. And the magic that's happening around what we're doing, it's, it's, I'm, a, I'm also a numbers guy and a math guy. And I like asking questions like, what's the reason for this and this and this? There's no, logic be behind the growth that we're experiencing that the whole world is experiencing as we wake up to the insanity that you're referring to it's just nuts the solution then becomes the opportunity for our generation to actually usher in a new world again to usher in a world of the garden of eden ideal where there's literally just abundance everywhere how do kids take to this you know like I, I'm imagining the people that you guys serve, um, and we'll talk how how that happens in in a moment. But I bet kids just love this when their parents get on board with this and they start transforming their yard. I mean, do kids just like innately know this is the way to do things and yes. have fun with it? They absolutely do. So we've got a baby girl, Sophia, and uh, we have all these berries in our backyard. And every multiple times a day, she before she could even talk, she would try to say berries, but she would point. And I knew what she meant, right? And sometimes I'm like, we're just out there. <laughs> but then I go, okay, wait a minute. This would be, <sighs> and then I'm like, okay, let's go get some berries. So I'd have her on my shoulder. Sometimes I'd put her down in the grass. And she was the best berry finder towards the end of the several months that the berries were prolific and expansive. She, there would be very few left and she'd be looking, she'd be like, da, 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 there's one. And I'd have to dig my arm in there and come out with a bloody arm sometimes, but it was worth it to get that last berry that was buried under there. Um, kids, something innate in our being that resonates with this idea of having food. It's just magical when you see them pick a, they're like, oh my gosh. And a lot of kids grow up in the, where they're in food deserts where 7-Eleven and Taco Bell are the only food that they have, right? And that's why you wonder why the diabetes is so prevalent and all these diseases and diseases, because it doesn't just affect our bodies. It's a psychosomatic system, right? They, uh, it also radically affects our ability to think and to discern. And again, this is not by accident. This is all a very well-defined and very openly spoken strategy of control. So if the strategy is of control, the solution is food growing everywhere. Do you think there's going to be any point if this really does take off as a movement that um, the, the powers that be that have sort of jostled their way into this control grid that we're all under, whether we know it or not, do you foresee a time when there's, you know, going to be legislation that wants to prevent people from growing food in their yard or does any, are there any limitations like that? Or can you, outside of an HOA or something where you have aesthetic rules or things like that? I mean, it seems to me if, if vast numbers of people become empowered in this way, that there could be some pushback on that. There has been forever. The uh, warring armies would go in. The first thing they do is kill the farmers and take the food crops. Food supply chains, if you look at any military structure, military strategy, controlling the food supply is 
number one. Oh, right. right. Like Mao. Like Mao. And yeah, like yeah. Henry Kissinger. He said, if you want to control people, control food. That wasn't the ramblings of a lunatic. That was the strategy of a person in charge of implementing the strategy. An evil genius. I always wonder, not to be evil myself, but is that guy ever going to die? Like, <laughs> he's been like wreaking havoc behind the scenes. Yeah. You know, it's, some of these people, I think, how can you live that long when you're yeah. full of such darkness? It's yeah. just bizarre. And why did he meet with every president? What, 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 who put him up to that? Right. Well, there, there's, and that's the who is the people that we are now decentralizing from and not through war. I mean, gardening or growing food is the act of the ultimate revolution. The relovution of our society is literally, it's that simple. And it's, uh, this is, there's so many BS belief systems and bad science and bullshit that we've been <laughs> programmed into us about this idea of growing food. And when we do it in the way that permaculturalists have proven all over the world, we attain freedom on levels that we haven't had for a long time. I think one barrier to entry, and maybe it is one of those preconceived ideas, is that, you know, like I was describing with my brief experience of attempting to do an urban garden, even with help, I found it to be really difficult and cumbersome. I think a barrier to entry is people just think it's going to be too hard and I don't have time and this yeah. and that. But when I hear you talk, I mean, I, I don't think it's just like a sales technique, but you make it sound like you don't have to do that much once you're up and running because yeah. of the way the system supports itself. Like how much, yeah. how much time does a small family actually have to invest to make this a meaningful endeavor? Have you ever been out in the woods and come across a berry bush, a raspberry bush, strawberries, blueberries, a fruit tree, anything edible, or even just anywhere, really, like we're on the edge of a community. Yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah. One so my who maintains that? One of my favorites is watercress. Yeah. You find watercress out in little, you know, springs and stuff like that. Right. And who maintains that? The answer is nobody. Yet it's still there. And that's one plant that was probably planted by a bird or a bear or some animal that defecated and that seed germinated. And now, one year later, a hundred years later, thousand years later, like there's an olive tree on the Greek Isle of Crete that's been producing olives for 2,000 years. Who maintains it? Something bigger than us, yeah, right? Yeah. So when you design and stack a food forest, instead of having one berry bush, all of a sudden you've got 50, 100, 300, 1,000 different types of food growing in an area by design, by intention. That's the type of society that I'm talking about. What kind of lead time are you looking at with, with the, um, it's the perennials that take longer, right? Fruit yes. trees and yeah. like with an olive tree, peach tree, if, if I was to go plant one of those today, yeah. am I looking at uh, two years before you see anything, three years, four years until yeah. it's just up and running? Yep. So it depends on how big you purchase it, but a lot of the the demand has been so high over the last couple of years. The supply is dwindling. And nowadays, a lot of times you can find like a, maybe a 18 month old tree that might be three to six feet tall. And that tree might have five fruit after it's in the ground, six months to a year, right? The next year it might have 25 fruit. Within four years, you've got a flourishing food producer that might produce literally enough just in that year to pay for it. So now you're talking about a cash ROI of over 100% within four to five years. Now, wow. where else can you get wow. that kind of ROI? Yeah. That doesn't include all the other returns, the yields beyond money. I've been into energetic healing technologies for many years, especially those that are supportive for EMF exposure. 
And there are a lot of so-called quantum products on the market, and I've tried just about any one I've ever heard of, but few of them have had any noticeable effect. However, there is one product line that's passed my test and become part of my arsenal, and it's called Leela Quantum Tech. Leela Quantum has developed a groundbreaking technology to increase your energy level, become more stress-resistant, and also helps to support your whole family, pets, and garden with pure quantum energy. The Leela Quantum products have been certified and studied by various third-party institutes and doctors, and these studies have found significant improvements in people's blood, cellular voltage, allergy reduction, and heart rate variability. But my favorite benefit of all is that the Leela Quantum products help neutralize harmful frequencies, including any EMF like 4G, 5G, microwaves, and Wi-Fi. In fact, I have the Leela Quantum block in my kitchen where I charge my food, drinks, and supplements, as well as the Infinity block in my living room and here in the studio for a huge energetic upgrade. Leela Quantum Tech is a truly conscious business that wants to do good in the world and even plants a tree for every order. So if you want to hook up your energetic environment and have a tree planted on your behalf, you can go to leelaq.com and use the code LUKE10 to save 10% off your first order. That's L-E-E-L-A-Q.com and the discount code is LUKE10 for new customers. You know, it's interesting to hear you say that because I'm thinking back to all my years in California and there would be trees like a persimmon tree, for example, something people don't eat a lot. Yeah. And even sometimes avocados. And, you know, these are old growth trees and it's just all over the ground, right? They're just rotten persimmons everywhere and they're just, they just fall and splatter on the ground and you can't even get to them. Even in my yard in LA, actually, I'm thinking about this. I had a couple of fruit trees. I don't even know what they were, but I couldn't get to them fast enough. You know, they, yeah. I've, it was kind of like, uh, what were they? God, I don't know. I, actually, I emailed the landlord and was like, what is this fruit? Is it edible? And of course, I, I tried it even without asking her mm. and I didn't die. <laughs> but it was producing some of these damn things. It was yeah. almost like a nuisance. You know, they were just like mm. splattered all over the back patio. Yeah. And, um, you know, I would have had to actually be mindful enough to go out and collect them and stuff. Yeah. But they also kind of went bad quickly, which is maybe why they're not a popular fruit. But that... uh that's very true. You know, once yeah. once they're kind of up and running, it's almost like more than you know what to do with yeah. in some cases. That's right. A uh, lot of people do feel guilty. They see a bunch of fruits on the ground. They're like, oh, I didn't. Eat. That's good. They go back into the system. You know, like this fall, a lot of people have huge bags, dozens of bags of leaves that they're putting on the curb so somebody can take those leaves away. Those leaves are nature's way of replenishing the soil. And you take them out of the system, that is, it's the wrong thing to do. Can you grow olives in uh, Texas, in this I, area? Yes, I believe you can. I, I'm not, um, I know we're growing them in Florida, and but I don't know for certain about different parts of Texas. Maybe, maybe Got not. It. Yeah, I love olives. I had a friend that had a property in Ojai, California. She was on, I think, five acres and all around the house, speaking of a nuisance, all around the house, it's just all olive trees. And at a certain time of year, you'd walk around. <laughs> they were just everywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'd walk around and just pick them up and eat them. And I'm like, eh, that's gross. It's got dirt on it. I'm like, what do you think you're made of? You know? Exactly. Yep. I mean, I like, I always like the idea too of eating, eating food off the, you know, in a clean, yeah. not in a city, obviously, yeah. but eating it off the ground and like getting some of that microbiome. And, and the magnesium yeah. and all different things that we're lacking now because we're not eating from the dirt. You know, and, and, and there's so much 
so many different micronutrients in the dirt that humanity is void of now. And that's a big part of the dis-ease and disease system that we got. So in a permaculture system, when we're not using artificial inputs like fertilizer and things like that, what are we doing to keep the soil robust? Do you ever play with things like uh, rock dust minerals or yes. diluted seawater, any of this yeah. kind of fancy stuff? Absolutely. Um, we like to kick it off with worm castings, rock dust, biochar, sometimes the diluted seawater. Um, all of those things are good starters because they get it, they get it really germinated or, or kicked off. They are the catalyst. And then when you, and a lot of, this is the number one thing that everybody can do right now. If you've got fruit trees in your backyard or bushes is get some worm casting, some biochar and put mulch on top, lay that down on the ground and then get four inches of mulch, four inches of wood chips, because it's that interaction between the edges that is so powerful between the edge of the soil, you never want, like what happened to you, the rains came and washed away your soil. So if you'd have had mulch on there, the rains would have hit and it would have sunk that water into the ground. And now you've got more life instead of less life. And so in this system, we're not really using any kind of fertilizer other than what's being generated from the soil. Is exactly. that right? Yes. And sometimes people have inputs like chickens um, some people have cattle, some horses, and they let that manure age. And then they mix that with the compost, the leaf piles. They do certain chop and drop techniques. They throw it all in a, in a big bunch and they spread that out. And that's going to increase the yield. It's going to increase the rapidity of the growth. And what about uh, composting? How much, how necessary is that? Like, Again, I've not done that, but I always think, oh, composting. I mean, you, you're probably a really good person if you compost, but it just seems like a pain in the ass, you know, just managing it and stuff like that. Is that an integral part of a food forest or could one produce food without actually composting their waste? Right. So you can, but when you turn composting, the element of composting into a multi-beneficial thing, then it's, it's a win-win. So in other words, a lot of people think of composting as you have a composter in a bucket of putrefied, rotten, stinky, fly. That's what I think. But, of. Right. Yeah. But here's the best way to compost is, let's say you've got your food forest in your backyard and you have certain areas of high density where you've got four or five plants within a, an area this big and you could put a little circle in the middle, you throw some compost there and, and then you've got 20 or 30 of these little circles around your yard. You throw your compost every other day or let's say every seventh day, you throw your compost in a particular area. It never builds up and creates that smell or the flies. The worms then come up and eat that compost. And then the roots of the plants go towards it. The worms go down and leave their worm castings. And now it's radically simple. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. And then what about... Uh, pest control. You know, the couple of times I've tried to grow food, I mean, it's, you know, I'd go out there and spray it with like garlic water. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'd try these like homespun remedies and I never could quite get it. How are we dealing with, uh, you know, the animals and plants that want to come eat the food that we want to eat? Yeah. So the best system is one that's diversified where you'll have a certain bug problem. And well, I'm going to, a couple little stories here because I want to bust another BS is spiders and wasps and different things. So spiders uh, and, and snakes even, spiders and snakes in total kill 11 people out of 330 million a year. And those people are probably already sick. Wow, I'm right? glad to hear that because they have some gnarly ass spiders out yeah. here in Texas. Yeah, yeah. It's, I saw one the other night. It was legit. It wasn't a tarantula, but it was as big as a tarantula. Yeah. 
And I was sitting there with a the good old boy from Texas and I was like, look at that. And he just, he's like, what? I mean, he didn't even know it. He's just not impressed at all. He's lived here forever. And I was, I kept checking behind my seat, you know, I'm like, dude, that thing's never going to come near yeah. you. It's just, it's enjoying its life over there. Relax, you know? Isn't that great? So we have been programmed into fearing. Now spiders take out about 500 metric tons of insects per year. So a spider web in a food forest is your best friend. That's your defense. A wasp nest in a food forest is an incredible defense. The food that's getting eaten by the beetle or the army worm will release pheromones. The pheromones to the wasp flying over have a certain color. The wasp will see the color, lunch. No the wasp way, really? becomes your protector oh my God. of your food force. Same with the snake. You, you've got food force growing on. You're going to have some, some rats, some mice, right? But when you have a balanced system, then those animals are part of the system. And what's more scary, the hundreds of millions of people who are going to get cancer, 50%. A lot of people think cancer is genetic. We're told by the powers that be that cancer is genetic. Yet a hundred years ago, like a few percent of people got cancer, now 50%. Well, that blows the whole door off the genetic theory. Yeah. I think it's, it's, it's the gene called glyphosate. <laughs> yeah, you nailed it. Yeah. Yeah. That and one, fear. Man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so in this system, we're working how to create this uh, synergistic relationship. Right. And then it sounds like there's a certain degree of deprogramming that's got to go into place where if you saw a rodent in your backyard, you don't freak out because right. you know that it's just the natural course of things. And, yep. you know, a snake's going to come along or yeah. a freaking possum or whatever it is right. is going to come right. along and take care of it. Exactly. Possums eat rats, but you get the point. Yeah, well, possums actually are great protectors. Possums are the wood ticks number one predator. They kill tens of thousands of wood ticks a year. Wow. Right? Yeah. So possums are fantastic. And people say, oh, possums, they're dangerous. Well, they can't get rabies. They do kill some snakes. Like, they're awesome critters. In fact, we do possum boxes in any of our food forest customers who want possums. Really? Yeah. I know they look kind of funky and people hate them because yeah. they got a long tail like a rat and they look really crazy. But yeah. they're fantastic creatures. Dude, when I was a kid in Northern California, I'm trying to think how they get in. Maybe we left the garage door open, but a number of times uh, I caught them eating the cat food. We yep. keep the cat food bowl out in the garage and- you're in the middle of the night, you go out to do the laundry and trying to light and there's a possum there, you know, and they're kind of not afraid of you. I don't know right. if they just get stunned, but he'd kind of just sit there and go, what are you going to do? You know, yeah. it's like, ah, but again, that's that kind of programming, you know, and you, you hear these kind of cultural memes of, oh, possums will bite you. Well, who's going to go down and like try to grab a possum by its right. snoot, you know, right. and you kind of just leave it alone and it ends up wandering off. Right. That'd be a good thing to Google. How many people die of possum bites a year? I bet it's right. zero. <laughs> right. <laughs> right? Totally. And yet we got the fear, but yet we're not fit, uh, scared of cancer. We're not scared of glyphosate. We're not scared of the things that are actually destroying our world. And that's, that's really good, good marketing. Point. That's billions of dollars of marketing. That's a good point. When I go into uh, every once in a while, kind of um, a mainstream grocery store, let's just say, I remember years ago, I had only gone to these really, you know, uh, high-end health food stores in LA. There's a place called Air One. And I mean, it'll cost you a lot to go in there, but I would make room. Uh, so I shopped there and maybe Whole Foods here and there, but pretty much that was my go-to. Yep. And then every once in a while, I'd go in a store like Ralph's or Albertson's or something and walk in there. I think, oh, I'm, you know, I'm going to go get some grass-fed butter or just something mm -hmm. quick that I need to pick up. And I'd walk in and look at the shelves and i go... People still eat this stuff? Uh -huh. I thought everyone stopped when I did in the 90s. I know, you know? I know. I go in, it's tricks are for kids, you know, yeah. the whole sugar and 
GMO corn cereal oh, aisle. And I'm just God. like, oh man, I feel so bad. It's not a judgmental thing. It's just, I feel compassion for people that have just kind of been born into the system where they think that stuff is food and it is literally poison. Yeah. It's actual poison. They, it's actual poison. And they don't see through their real eyes. They don't realize it because of the programming. And so that's what I love doing is helping to bust through that programming by having these talks. And what yeah. about uh, larger animals? I'm thinking in my neighborhood, there's a crap load of deer. And I love them. I was going to like put deer corn out in the yard and yeah. bring them in. Yeah. And then everyone said, they're going to bring a lot of ticks. You know, you don't want to bring yeah. a bunch of deer in your yard. But I was thinking about in the, in the front of my house, there's a lot of just wasted land. There's a few decorative plants, but there's yeah. nothing really happening out there. And yeah. you wouldn't really go sit in the front yard of, of my house. It's, yeah. you know, it's on the street, et cetera. Um, and I thought, oh, I could grow a bunch of food there. And I thought, it'll be gone in a day because of the deer. Yeah. And you mentioned before putting these, you know, prickly, thorny bushes around it. Yeah. it is there anything else you could do to keep deer out of your good food? I yeah. mean, do you have to put up fences or wire over it or what? So I love fences uh, for that reason and for different reasons, because every fence becomes a food fence or a trellis. And when you have a typical fence, let's say it's chain link or even a wood fence, it looks way better when it's completely green. Agreed. And a green fence, a deer, they, they can jump over a 2D object. But if you have a 3D object, so if you have a fence, let's say, and some different, yeah, even a meter away, you have one line of electric fence if you're like way out in the country, or, and then you put some um, tinfoil on there with some butter, they come up and lick it once and they're gone. They tell all the friends, right? <laughs> Are you serious? Yeah. Um, or Whoa. the raspberries, you, you combine them. And you have some maybe raspberries along the edge of a fence. Now you've got a really good buffer that the deer typically aren't going aren't gonna to jump over. That's a good tip. That's a good tip. So they approach the fence and they don't know that it's only, you know, two feet deep of right. vines or something. Right. They just see this massive thing. And so they're less prone to try to hop over it. Exactly right. Oh, that's cool. What else can you grow on a fence other than grapes? Um, in Florida, we're huge at passion flower and gag fruit. And there's even perennial, uh, like lettuces, spinaches that grow on fences. Anything that vines is really good. Or you can even train a fig or different types of other plants, moringa to be a, a natural fences. And those are really cool too. They take more time though. A lot of people who want to start growing food, they don't want to have a fence that takes them three or four years to actually come in especially if they've got all the other stuff around that's a good point yeah, yeah especially like imagine you build a brand new fence you know and you're yeah. like all right we're gonna do the thing you know and then you're waiting around a couple of years yeah, yeah. when's the first grape come damn yeah, exactly uh let's see man there's so many things i wanted to ask you let me check my notes here i went went on the fly i didn't need notes which is always a good sign that i'm talking to someone interesting cool um oh i know what it is so you know, you talk about what a waste this uh, monocrop of, of lawns are, you know, and um, I mean, I think lawns look pretty. They're manicured. It, it, it creates a nice space. But I really find a utilitarian purpose in lawns of just being able to go hang out on lawns. Yeah. Right. Roll around, take a nap, play some ball, you know, yeah. fool around. Um, you know, what kind of is there a ratio of in a backyard how much lawn you want to keep versus how much you want to actually use for food? So the ratio is completely personal choice. What we love to do in permaculture is work the edges. So let's say you've got a backyard that's 50 feet by 50 feet and you take four to six feet along the edge of that yard. And then maybe in the corners, you come out 10 feet and maybe you have another couple areas where you've got little circles where you've got one guild, one um, 
fruit tree, and then all of the component plants, the community of plants in there. And just using that edge, you can create an incredible amount of food by stacking. You've got your, your roots and tubers, your sweet potatoes and things and all the way up to the overstories. And when it comes to uh, food that you don't end up going out to pick, yeah. like I was describing the persimmons just plopping on the ground and just yeah. going back into the soil. Yeah. In a permaculture system, how much pruning and things like that are necessary to keep the plants producing? And when they do produce, if you don't use it, God forbid you're wasting food, but it, I'm sure it happens. Do you just kind of let it do its thing? Yeah, just... you know, it's a cycle of life. You're not wasting. You're just actually composting. You're putting it ah, right okay. back in and the worms are going to come up and eat that food. They're going to create worm castings. Everything's better off. And that's why we like to put in some extra plants that are specifically for creating green manure or green mulch. Um, your question right before that was what? Uh, pruning. Pruning. Oh, I yeah, love yeah. this one. This one is so fun. So most people, when you prune, so you got a, a fruit tree and to prune, you want to open up certain areas so the sun and the air can get in there. And so the energy will go into the fruit production instead of creating bigger branches and more leaves. <laughs> like when you grow cannabis. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. You want to prune at the right time. Right, right. So then you have more buds. So same exact thing with a fruit tree, but here's where it gets magical. So pruning, let's say you prune a stick, a branch, and it takes you like couple minutes, a couple seconds, right? You cut that thing off and you lay it on the ground. If you go out there 10 weeks ahead of time and you cut a little notch of, around the bark and you put a gadget there, even a tennis ball with soil and rooting compound in there, it's called air layering. You put that on there and then 10 weeks later, you cut that off and you've got a brand new $20 fruit tree. Oh, wow. So you just spent three or four or five minutes. You just made $20 times a thousand branches in your food forest. You can pay somebody 20 bucks an hour to go do that after a tiny bit of training, now you've just made a huge profit by what was typically an expense or a liability. You just turned it into an asset and you've become part of the supply chain. And that's what we need. We need more people creating nurseries and becoming part of the supply chain. Wow, that's super cool. So you're creating a clone basically, yeah. right? Yeah. Interesting. You mentioned uh, Moringa, mm -hmm. which is a, you know, a great medicinal herb. Mm -hmm. Can you integrate things like, um, you know, ashwagandha or any other, not food plants, but really traditional herbal medicines into permaculture? Absolutely. They're a big part of it. Um, we just built at Adrian's place, um, we built a Chinese medicine wheel theme. And it's phenomenal. It's oriented north, east, south, and west. And it's got all these different medicinal herbs in there. And But yes, medicinals are an incredible part of a food forest. And they're also functional in other ways. A lot of them are flowering. A lot of them have beautiful smells. You know, uh, Dr. Ian Scott, my partner, he's got uh, in his front door, he's got three different types of um, flowering and, and very fragrant plants that one of them comes on early spring. One of them is midsummer and the other one is late fall. So you walk into his house and there's always a new smell, a beautiful smell. In oh, there. that's very cool. Well, folks, fall is just around the corner, so the days are going to be shorter and we'll have less of a chance to get that sweet, natural sunlight that we all need. Now, thankfully, I don't have to sweat the winter months ahead because of my Juve Red Light Therapy System. As you might have figured out by now, I am a sun fanatic due to the fact that we've evolved to be outdoors 24-7. Now, while Juve obviously can't replace natural sunlight, it does deliver similar wavelengths of light. 
red and near-infrared to be specific, that have been clinically proven to be very beneficial to your health. But don't trust this hippie. Trust the science. Thousands of peer-reviewed research articles have demonstrated the benefits of red and near-infrared light for things like skin health, reduced pain and inflammation, and faster muscle recovery. For this reason, there are of course tons of red light products on the market now, but I dig Juve for the following reasons. First, they offer a wide selection of configurations from small handheld devices to large setups that can treat your entire body. Another feature I love with Juve's latest generation of products is something called Ambient Mode, which uses lower intensity red light designed to be used at night as a healthy alternative to bright blue light. You can just throw one of these things on and it'll eclipse all the blue light in your environment for the most part. Since we're all staring down the gloomy months ahead, I highly recommend investing in a Juve device. I really use mine every single day, especially in the morning during my breath work routine. That's kind of my jam. And for a limited time, Juve is offering all of my listeners, including you, an exclusive discount code on your first order. Go to juve.com Luke and apply my code Luke for your qualifying order. Again, that's J-O-O-V-V dot com slash Luke. Of course, some exclusions apply for this limited time offer. So how do, um, how do people work with you and your company? You know, I've, I've watched you over the past few months that we've been chatting about sitting down here and recording uh, grow to where now you have, um, you know, for lack of a better term, kind of a franchise where people can go learn how to do the installations. And it's almost, it's not only where you're providing people the opportunity to grow their own food, but also people to start their own business. Yes. I'd, I'd love to hear kind of the latest news on all that, because right yeah. now so many people are out of work and so many yeah. things are shifting. I mean, I get messages from people all the time that are, you know, they've been forced to quit their job because yeah. of mandates and things like that. Yeah. And they're like, ah, uh, what am I going to do? Yeah. You know, and it seems like this could be a pretty cool opportunity for, for both sides of that, you know, the consumer yeah. and, and a provider. It's the best opportunity in the world. We are in the midst of the biggest transition in human history. It took us hundreds of years to get to radically unsustainable and unsustainable and death are the same thing. Now, over the next five, 10, maybe 20 years, we are going to be radically abundant. And our job as a business is to keep putting it back and putting it back. And we're going to be out of business, at least our core business, which right now is designing and installing edible landscapes. That'll be done because there'll be food everywhere in, within 20 years. So the business model is we, in fact, the franchise word comes up a lot. I actually spent about a quarter million dollars getting a franchise model ready. It was going to be with the fancy greenhouse and then permaculture edible landscapes. And through the process, I had a 244 page FDD federal uh, franchise disclosure document and an 89 page operations manual. And I held it and it made me sick. <laughs> Too complex. It represented everything that I'm against. Right. You know, and it's all, every line in there was a line about control and about fear. I threw the whole pile of shit in the trash. And we now have a two-page contract. We have no non-competes, no non-disclosures, no patents. And we invite anybody who wants to take this idea. You can take everything we're doing other than our brand. That's ours. Everything else, anybody could copy it and duplicate this model. They, I, we don't have, you could take our pictures. I don't care. Take it all right? And, and use it except for our brand and do the same thing. What we would encourage is even a better route is work with us. Let's collaborate. And this is where it's going viral. This is where it's scalable. 
Um, a little backstory, I created a mortgage company back when I was 30. And within about three and a half years, we went from zero, me broke in my mom's basement after traveling, to about $1.3 billion in sales and 480 loan officers in three and a half years. This Damn, is- son. So you know how to scale. That's exactly right. <laughs> and the whole thought, my whole thought has always been, how do we scale this globally? We just opened New Zealand, Australia. We've got food forest cooperatives going in everywhere. A cooperative is a, a business model. It's exactly like landscaping, except for it's functional landscaping. It's food forestry. And it's, it's profitable. A three or four day install that takes three or four guys, you know, three or four days is got a profit margin of about 40% on a $15,000 average job. You're looking at five, six grand net in your pocket after four days of work. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's super cool. So in the B2C realm of your business model, uh, a guy like me can go on your site, buy a blueprint, uh, and then hire someone from your team directly to come out to my place and do the install. And like, if I just want it one and done, you guys do that. Or if someone's looking at this more as a business opportunity and a B2B thing, you train them. Is there any kind of a certification involved or how do they get up to speed on actually how to do it to, yeah. to make money at it? So to buy our marketing package, I actually was able to take a zero off because I don't have all the franchise BS, right? So it's 2,950 and that's our full marketing package. That's everything we've produced, which is tens of thousands of dollars worth of assets to help people get to market, including a 54 hour class on permaculture that can be done, you know, uh, in your underwear at night you know, on your computer and very incredible information. Mostly Bill Molson and Jeff Lawton are the teachers of this class. And by the time people are done with this class, they have a whole new view of the world and what's possible. Then our team, our, our internal mission is to serve the cooperative. The cooperative is our partner that's on the ground actually installing these, these food forests. So here's how a typical process works. We're getting the message out everywhere. Somebody calls us up and says, I'd like a food forest at my house. Okay, great. It all starts with design. Design is job one to make sure that it's designed right. When we're done with the design, which takes about two and a half, three weeks, it's a custom design. Every design is custom. It, it comes with a 45-page document that's called a food forest blueprint. And that layers all of the, the different elements of how to um, create your sheet mulching. And basically, it's a DIYable document. So anybody who wants, and we encourage this, can DIY their own food forest. Most people don't want to because they're time, they're busy, whatever. And those people, we can have our cooperative team come in and do the whole system, the whole install for you. So cool. It's, it's scalable. This is badass. It's, badass. <laughs> so, it's so great. I mean, I just, I love healthy food, right? First off, and I love that interdependence and just especially now i think it's i mean i've always been that way i just want to do my own thing be left alone leave other people alone and just take care of my shit you know but now there's um you know as we talked about a little earlier there's a sense of urgency yeah you know because i think we're seeing how fragile this system is in many ways you know yeah. you look at the supply chain uh, crisis that we're having and these cargo ships sitting outside of long beach for two months i mean it's weird it's yeah. getting weird yeah even if you're you know a positive person like me and I'm eternally optimistic, it's yeah. still kind of like, huh, I don't know. I feel like now is a good time to start to get on board with this and at least begin to learn about it, yeah. you know, so that 
as things progress, you don't pull the trigger before it's kind of too late. You right. Know? right. That's my concern as well. Um, however, I'm an optimist and I have, there's the number one control mechanism or tool is fear. Right? And I went through a process of cognitive distance, a process of focusing so much on the problem that it sucked. Right? Yeah. And I struggle I, with that too. Yeah. Started at nine with nine eleven. Me too. Yeah. Once I saw a few of those documentaries, I was like, oh my God, we're doomed. Yeah. Yeah. A building can't fall into its own footprint at free fall speed. <laughs> Especially building seven. <laughs> there you go. Man. Exactly. It's just, it, and yet 90% of the population never heard of building seven. Right. A 46-story building that fell and a plane didn't even hit the thing. I was talking to someone yesterday about the Pentagon and I was like, I was talking about my red pill moment. And for me, the 9-11 thing was, but specifically the Pentagon. And I said, yeah, you know, a friend of mine showed me this video uh, that showed that there was no plane that ever hit the Pentagon. And he was like, wait, what? No, a plane hit the thing. I said, that's what I thought. Yeah. Go back and watch the videos. There's no sign of a plane anywhere. Yeah. Any any parts of a plane, no engine, no fuselage, no yeah. passengers, no seats, no debris. There's not even wing marks where the supposed plane hit. Anyway, I could go on and on. Yeah. But I think, you know, ultimately it's a positive thing when one is open-minded yet still discerning. Yeah. And you at least start to just go, okay, I, I don't know what happened or what yeah. is happening. There's a lot of people have theories about what's happening right now. Who knows? You know, on the most extreme they want to depopulate the planet and they're doing so intentionally on the, on the least extreme, they're being deceptive and everyone's making a bunch of money you know, yeah. at the top, right? Yeah. There's one is it's ignorance. The other ones is it's either psychopathic evil or evil, evil, right. or right. we're in a simulated reality of our own making as spirit playing a game. Yeah. I like that one. I <laughs> yeah. think that's probably where I'm landing with it. It gives me some solace, you know, this, yeah. this duality is, it serves a purpose, you yeah. know? Yeah. Uh, but regardless of where someone falls on the spectrum of, you know, paranoia versus um, optimism, mm -hmm. I think anyone that's, um, you know, just willing to be honest with themselves uh, sees the value in yeah. building something new. Yeah. And I think that's a, a part of your perspective that I like. It's not like we're going to go tear the system down and, yeah. you know, bomb the Capitol. It's like, no, let the system just do its thing. Yeah. It's going to run out of gas eventually anyway, because, because it's not sustainable according right. to your definition of it, which right. I agree with. So how about if we just build a parallel reality over here exactly. where each little family one at a time yeah. is just starting to do their own thing? hundred percent. We rise above the control mechanisms of fear and food control and all these things. And we, then just do what is better for us. It's completely selfish. And yet it's also serving, right? And that's when you can align selfishness with serving, then you've got the best of everything. Yeah. And the magic, man, I started meditating really about nine, 10 months ago, deep. And which to me just means I can feel my hands. Like I can feel them right now. I can feel the energy. I can hear the vibration. I can feel. And then all of a sudden, when I allow my mind to just chill the heck out, ideas come. And then they're, they're very potent ideas. Like, oh my God, I got to go do that. I go, I call somebody, I type something, I do something. And then that worked. Okay, next idea, next idea. And I, I watched the show Messiah. I don't know if you've ever seen that. On, no, it's on Netflix or something. I watched that show a couple of times because that guy just sat there and he'd wait for the idea and he would just act right, instantly. And I'm like, that's freaking exactly right. You know, just wait for the idea and the magic. Like, for instance, this is still so mind-blowing to me. Um, I'm not really a TV guy. I never have been, but I've had my favorite shows. And one of my favorite shows was The Crocodile Hunter with Steve Irwin. Oh, great. Right? Yeah. And when he died, I cried, right? Love that fella. Yeah. And so I get a call two months after Dell's show aired. 
And it was the producers of the Crocodile Hunter said, Jim, we'd like to shine a light on you and your visions for society. I instantly said yes, because this is <laughs> what? That's yeah, crazy. It's crazy. This is part of yeah. the intentionality that I put out to the universe is let's bring in big. Let's go big. Let's change the world. Right? If you can conceive it and believe it, you can achieve it. I can conceive and believe that we're going to change the world. And boom, we've got a, less than six months later. And then Adrian called two days later, the number one TV star for like five or six years running. He was my favorite character in all of TV. So I get a call from the producer and my favorite actor within two days of each other. And we just finished a pilot that'll be seen by millions. It'll change a lot of people's lives. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank well, you. you're going to reach a few, I don't know how many, probably tens of thousands of people uh, with this one. Yeah. You know, so thank you for the work that you're doing and thank awesome, you for your bro. time. Uh, I'm sure I could go on and on for a few more hours, but I feel this is a good a good stopping point. It yeah. gives people, uh, I think, a nice overview of the whole yeah. thing in a way that's digestible and applicable. Uh, there was one last question, though, and that was, aside from someone who says, you know what, I want a new career or my career went away. I want to start doing these installations and, and build my own yeah. you know, business out of this. Do you think there's any viability or potential in someone who's got a decent sized piece of land to actually start bringing some of their food to a farmer's market or something like that, or, you know, selling it to their neighbors and monetizing it in that way? Or is there not enough kind of bulk that makes that possible? Oh, Luke, I, that, that is just a softball. And I'm not even a good uh, baseball <laughs> softball player, but I can nail that one out of the park. The, a food forest is the ultimate stack of functionality relevant to our world today. So let's say you have a, a food forest on some land, you do some centropic rows. Now, Number one, you're creating beauty and resiliency and food for yourself. Number two, you're creating a demonstration system, right? Which in other words, you can demonstrate what's possible and then you can fulfill that need in society, that massive need in society by serving the customer and doing the install. You create a little group of people around it. You also then become part of the supply chain. So the food forest at your house that becomes a demonstration system is one of the wisest things we can do right now. Wow. Cool. Yeah. Love it, dude. My last question for you is who have been three teachers or teachings that have influenced your life and your work that you might share yeah, with us? I love this. Um, I'm going to go with not quite the mainstream because everybody's talked about Napoleon Hill and that. Um, Swami hmm. Rama living with the Himalayan masters. I read the oh, book wow. several times, blew my mind. Um, Michael Talbot, the holographic universe, read the book several times, blew my mind. And then um, those two, and then there was one more. Oh, David Hawk and uh, Power Versus Force. Yeah, buddy, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Did you read, listen to my show before? I always talk about David Hawkins. Uh, yeah, the fantastic. Best. Yeah, about the best. understanding human psychology. <laughs> Incredible. Changed my life. Yeah, me too. I've read his books over and over again, yeah. then listened to them over and over again. And just when I think I got it, I'll take a break. Then I go back. I just listened to one. Uh, I think it's called The Eye of the Eye. I hadn't heard that in quite some time. Some of them, like Power vs. Force was a good entry point. Where I was like, I kind of get this, you yeah. know? And then I got into some of the other books and I could only read a paragraph. My brain would be tired. Yeah. But I went back and listened to that and I was like, oh my God. Yeah. Because I've evolved along with it, yeah. you know? In my yeah. consciousness evolution, when I first read it, I could get bits and pieces and it resonated as as some deep truth. But yeah. now it's it's a good affirmation, I think, to go back and you go wow, I've actually applied some of this to my yeah. life to where it's not head knowledge. There is some applied wisdom in that. Yeah, he's just an endless treasure trove of 
uh, of teachings. It's amazing. I'm I'm gonna listen to that tonight. I'm really excited. About yeah, that. good stuff, man. Yeah. I've sent his stuff to so many people, and I say if you don't get it at first, just keep listening to it. You know, yeah. by osmosis, yeah. if nothing else, eventually yeah. it'll kind of sink in. But yeah. you know that teachings like that of non-duality really the only way I've yeah. been able to psychologically get through what we're going through. Yeah, to just understand that you know there's there's a design to this duality. Yeah. And, when I look at someone who I just think is the, you know, the epitome of evil, like a Bill Gates or a George Soros, I mean, yeah. there's a bunch of them. From one perspective, they really are playing their role perfectly, yeah. you know, and and yeah. and and also oftentimes are victims of their own, yeah. um, you know, trauma or yeah. their own misconceptions and yeah. um, diversions from truth. Right? right? They're I think they're miserable. Yeah. And 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 that doesn't forgive anything, but we're more than this. And so if, when I realized, realized that we're so much more than this, that we are in this contrast is what pushes us forward. You know, that friction is what creates life yeah. and energy. Yeah. yeah. Right on, man. Uh, what about websites? Where can people find you uh, on websites and all that? Foodforestabundance.com. Mm-hmm. And we're all over now. We've got, got an incredible team, um, social media people, and just all over the place. Food Forest Abundance is, is kind of going out there everywhere. And if someone like listening to this right now is like, oh, I want to do this tomorrow, do you guys, are there only certain states that you guys do installations for? Is it all U.S. or any outside the U.S.? Like what's your um, geographic? Yeah. Everywhere. Area right now? Everywhere now. We're now in 15 countries and 40 states really? in six months. Holy yes, we've had crap. millions of dollars invested. We've got every single food force customer that I've talked to is wanting to become a demonstration site. So ah, it's okay. seeding and nourishing the rapid expansion of this. Good for you, dude. Yeah, so fun. awesome. Well, thanks for making the time to come out today. Thank you, brother. All right. I'm so glad I did. Me too. <laughs> well, thank you for taking another lifestyleist journey with me on episode number 385. As you might have guessed from my enthusiasm in this conversation, I am really stoked about this topic and can't wait to see more of us taking our food supply into our own hands. I truly believe that this is the beginning of a turning point uh, for all of us to be able to gain more sovereignty and independence. I think we've all become very cozy in our dependence on this system, and I'm very grateful for the system. It's wonderful to be able to open an app and have food at your house in the next 30 minutes. But there is something disempowering about being completely dependent on this sometimes very fragile system. If you want to refer back to the show notes for this episode and also get links to start to create your own food forest, here's what you do. Go to lukestory.com slash food forest. And there you will find everything you need to know about not only this episode, but food forest abundance. And you might have guessed from this convo that Jim and I share a love for freedom and for sovereignty. If you'd like to gain access to news and content I can't share on social media, please join my Telegram channel at lukestory.com telegram. There you'll find everything I'm learning about the scamdemic and how to outsmart the ghouls currently running the world in real time. So again, that's lukestory.com telegram for the forbidden content. I'm so sorry that it has to be forbidden. You know, we're supposed to have a thing called free speech, I think. There's an amendment, I believe it's the first one that is uh, supposed to protect that. But, you know, in the age we live in, you have to make your own way. And Telegram seems like the way for now. We'll see how it goes. 
I've met people that say Telegram is compromised and that Signal's the good one. And I'm like, really? But last year I heard Signal was compromised and Telegram is a good one. Who knows? I'm going to keep putting stuff on blast there until somebody comes and puts me in shackles. But there are so many things that I'm just unable to share on social media that I think are important. If you want to find a life partner with which to share your future food forest, I'd like to invite you to join me next week for episode 386. It's called Soulmate Manifestation and the Ancient Keys to Joy and Success with second-time guest Dr. Barry Morgulin. And this dude is a Taoist master and just an incredibly wild character. I mean, not wild in his personality, but his gifts and his message are just outstanding. So once again, I'm just uh, giddy that I get to share yet another inspiring and informative conversation with you next week. So I want to thank you so much for joining me on the ride. You know, as we creep up on, uh, you know, 400 episodes here, sometimes I wonder to myself and now aloud, how long am I going to do this? You know, I think I'm six and a half years in or so at this point. Uh, creeping up on 8 million downloads, which by the way, thank you. You you made that possible. The downloads are sort of the metric by which you, I guess, measure the success and uh, at least the reach of your podcast as a creator. So I think that's a good number. Of course, I'm always looking to improve it. But uh, I don't know. It's hard for me to imagine not having these conversations. You know, as I travel through life, having this human experience, uh, these sort of long-form, in-depth conversations are the ones that I just enjoy having with people in real life. And I have a sense that if I stopped producing this podcast, that obviously I would still be having conversations like this. But in the middle of those conversations, I'd be going, oh man, I wish I was recording this so that I could share this with other people. I just meet so many brilliant and inspiring humans uh, on the journey that I just want to share their knowledge with people. I don't know. It's just a thing I have. It's like this, it's almost like a craving or I guess more aptly described as a drive. Yeah, that's it. I'm just driven. Like I find someone like Jim and I'm like, damn, this dude is so cool. He's doing something amazing. This is huge. Imagine if, you know, all of us, I mean, I was going to say some people, but just imagine a world in which Everyone has a little piece of land where they can grow their own food and support themselves and their family and their neighbors and community. I mean, it would be a completely different world. Just as he was discussing, let's get rid of, you know, 75% of all the lawns on the planet. Leave the golf courses alone, I guess. People like to get outdoors. I'm, I'm not mad at that. But just imagine, you know, all the single family homes in the world, or at least in the United States, that are just wasting water and beautiful life-giving sun on a lawn that doesn't really have a lot of uh, utility in terms of how it's used. And trust me, I like a good lawn. I mean, I like to walk barefoot on the lawn, play with the dog, but there's a lot of lawn out there that could be growing food. And I, I don't think Jim was being bold or unrealistic when he said, we can literally just feed the whole planet if everyone did that. So when I meet someone that's got the knowledge and the practical skills and um, strategy to do something like this. I just, I have to talk to them. And if I'm going to talk to them, I'm going to turn on the mics and the video cameras and I'm going to share it with you. So thank you so much for listening to this podcast. And I can't wait to be back next week to talk about soulmates. Be back in your ears then. Mm -hmm.